right, good morning, everybody. Okay, so kids, you don't have to tell them twice. They're lined up. So uh, kids, you guys are dismissed. So preschool through fifth grade and then um, middle and high school, if we have any of you guys, anybody, anybody? Oh, here we go. You're headed out with Don Jay today, which is great. It means I've got a little extra time this morning. Anyway, good to be with you guys uh, this morning. Uh, missed you last week. Um, as some of you know, we have two kids. Our two oldest kids are down uh, at college now at uh, Grand Canyon University in Phoenix. Um, and last weekend was family weekend. So an opportunity, Michelle and I went down and uh, they had events all day Friday and all day Saturday. And by the time we could get a flight, it was too late. And uh, let's just say there aren't that many flights that come from Phoenix early in the morning. So anyway, we were on a plane about the time that you guys were having church. But uh, Pastor Chris did a great job. I was able to listen in after the fact and was really ministered to by that. But I really missed you guys. And uh, as I, I have to confess, uh, as you guys were walking in this morning, I'm thinking, oh, I don't think I saw them last week. I don't think I saw them last week. And then I realized, wait a minute. <laughs> it was me that missed church last week. It wasn't you guys. So these are the pastor games that go on in, in our minds. So I was sort of taking attendance this morning in my head for last week. And when I was the one who missed. So anyway, good to be back with you. I, I want to just reiterate really quickly, as Pastor Jeff shared about that 30 days to understanding the Bible course. Um, uh, in my mind, this is one of the most important things that we do each and every year here. We try to do it in the fall every year. And uh, if you've been through it, I hope you would agree uh, that it can really transform just the way that you look at the Bible the way that you understand the Bible, even if you've been in the Lord for 30 years, 50 years, whatever years you have been, um, I would uh, venture to say you'll get something out of this book. So much so that I am prepared to offer a money-back guarantee this morning. If you get a book and you go through it and you're not ministered to by it, bring it back and uh, we'll give you a free cup of coffee for... Uh, for that. But I would really encourage you. So the way that it works is uh, there was no uh, work due today. We have books here. You just show up. We'll get you a book. And then each day there's a little uh, lesson, if you will. It'll take about 15 minutes, as the title would imply. But you just go through the seven lessons, uh, one each day for the week. And then when you come together next Sunday, it'll just be a real informal time um, so Pastor uh, Skelly will be leading us, or sorry, Professor Skelly and Pastor Chris are going to be leading that. And uh, it's just an informal time where they'll give you an opportunity just to kind of share some of the things that the Lord ministered to you uh, through the reading. Just maybe some of those aha moments where a light bulb went off and kind of some puzzle pieces started to fall into place that maybe you hadn't understood uh, yet. And so um, that's all the, the weekly meeting is. If you want to go through the book, but you don't want to hang out for the half hour or so after service each week, you're welcome to do that too. But I would really highly encourage you, if you're interested in understanding the Bible better and having all of your Bible study time be more fruitful, this is a class for you. If you're not interested in that, then please don't come to this class because you don't want anything to do with it. We wouldn't want you to learn too much about the Bible if you don't want to. So this morning, we're going to learn a little bit more about the Bible. Turn to Mark chapter 12. We're going to continue on in our study right through uh, <clears throat> the book of Mark. But before we do, oh, if you need a Bible, uh, we have Bibles for you, and we'd be happy to give you one to borrow or to keep. 
If you need, so just uh, raise your hands and we'll bring one to you. You can use a Bible on your phone or whatever, uh, whatever works for you. But let's pray and let's just ask the Lord to bless uh, our time together this morning in the Word. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning and we thank you for this um, place that you've provided, Lord, and this time that you have prescribed each week for us to come together. Lord, as your people united in the blood of your son, Jesus, Lord, baptized into this family, Lord, the body of Christ. And we thank you for the opportunity to worship you and to be ministered to by you, Lord. And we thank you for this time of worship that we've had. And we pray that that time would simply continue now as we open your word, Lord, and just uh, devote and dedicate this time to you. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher and that you would give us ears to hear what he would say um, to your church, Lord, not only collectively, Lord, but to each of us personally and individually, Lord. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. So Mark chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 35 through 40. Next week, we will actually finish chapter 12. Chapter 12 has kind of been this epic event uh, as we've gone through, but I think all of it's so rich, so important for us. Uh, you know, we're joining in here with Jesus in what is just this final week before he would go to the cross, before he will go and give his life as a ransom for our lives, right? Giving his sin, sinless life in place of our sinful lives to redeem us and to, to reconcile us back into that place of relationship with the Father. And we've watched over the course of this chapter, which all has been taking place right here in the temple courts, all on what is Tuesday, remember, of the Passion Week. We've watched the religious leaders of the Jews, right, increasingly threatened now by the growing popularity of Jesus. They're coming and they're trying to divide the people now against Jesus. They've been trying to kind of uh, trip him up, if you will, with this series of these loaded questions, trying to kind of ambush him as he was teaching there publicly in the temple courts. And they were bringing these questions to him. And understand, these were the most debated, the most contested, the most divisive of all the questions that were floating around in Israel and certainly floating around within Judaism at that time. And we've watched as each one of the three major kind of sects of the Jewish religious system each took their turn. Remember, first it was the Herodians with their political puzzler about paying taxes to Caesar. And then we saw the Sadducees and their doctrinal dilemma. Really, it was this kind of a theological trap that they brought about the, the reality of life after death. And then the scribe last week that was sent in by the Pharisees who brought that kind of what we said was an ethical entrapment about what was the greatest commandment of the 613 different commandments that they recognized and that they revered right there within the Mosaic law. And so it's been group after group, time after time, and Jesus not only did he easily answer each of their questions, but we've watched as he turned each one of them kind of into a teaching opportunity for this multitude now that had gathered and was watching all of this unfold. And he used 
used each one of these questions also just to reveal the hearts and to reveal really the hypocrisy of his enemies. And I think at this point, far from losing any popular support from amongst the people, I'm envisioning that likely at this point, they are all on their cell phones, right? They are texting their friends. They are calling their friends. They are saying, you get down here to the temple courts and check out what it is that's going on here, right? His popularity is just continuing to, to really swell. And when we left off, remember at the very end of verse 34, after Jesus had answered each one of them these questions perfectly, to the point it says that after that, no one dared to question him. So that was it. These guys are done. And even these men realized that they had been beaten, and we'll see that they will bring no more questions to Jesus. But what we're also going to see as we continue now in our text today, that now it was Jesus' turn to ask a question of these men. Right? So they were finished but Jesus was not finished. And in fact, he's first going to ask a question of these men, and then he's going to offer a very strong word of caution about these men to the multitudes. So it was now time for Jesus to really turn the tables on these religious leaders here in the temple courts. You guys see what I did there with the whole turning the tables on the religious leaders, right? Because he... Anyway, okay, look with me now in verse 30. That's going to be a long morning if you guys can't get. So one of the brothers told me this morning that the temperature in the sanctuary is always just perfect for a nap. So maybe we need to open up the, or maybe I just need to talk less. Look in verse 35. Jesus is going to ask them this one question. One question that's going to reveal their hearts and it's going to get right to the heart of their error in not recognizing them for who he truly was. And this is a crucial question for these men. Look in verse 35. It says, Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now this sounds like a simple question, and it really is, and yet it also isn't. So we have to ask, what is it that Jesus is getting at here? And remember, that term Christ, it's more than actually a term, it's a title, right? It's not Jesus' last name, right? It's who Jesus is. And notice there's a definite article that we see right before it, the Christ. Because the Christ was a reference to the Christos, or the christened one, or the anointed one, or in the Hebrew, the Mashiach, or the Messiah, right? And the title was simply referred back to that ancient practice kind of in general of the anointing of a king with oil when they would take the throne. Now, the Messiah in particular, in the context of the nation of Israel, was this person whom the Lord had promised and the prophets had long predicted would eventually come onto the scene and would deliver the Jewish people from all of their foreign powers who were oppressing them. And then would reestablish King David's throne and reestablish David's kingdom on the earth. And so this idea of, of this Davidic Messiah, especially now 
during the time of Jesus, especially now during what is the occupation of Israel by Rome, this idea of a Davidic delivering Messiah was firmly entrenched in every Jewish mind in the first century. Everybody was waiting for the Messiah. And they all assumed, they rightly assumed, that he would be a son or a descendant directly from the line of King David. And they rightly assumed it, really, because the scribes had rightly been teaching it, because it was a fact that was very clearly established all throughout the Old Testament. I mean, from the book of 2 Samuel to the Psalms to Isaiah to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, all of them, multiple references to this coming deliverer. And we remember just when Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem, just two days before this, remember on Palm Sunday, down the Mount of Olives, on the back of that donkey, in what we saw and what we said was a deliberate claim that he was the Messiah. He was presenting himself to the nation as their Messiah. And we remember that the crowd, they started shouting out, from that messianic Psalm 118, they said, Hosanna to the what? To the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we know, and you can bet that these men also knew, they knew that Jesus indeed was a direct descendant of David, just like Luke details for us in his genealogy. There's no doubt that these religious leaders had already scrutinized and probably re-scrutinized all of the records they had available and they had come to the correct conclusion that Jesus had come directly from King David through the line of his son, King Solomon. And so none of this was actually in dispute. And so I can see you kind of puzzled at this point, saying, well, then why is Jesus even asking this question if they already had the answer? And the reason we're going to see next is that Jesus is trying to show them that they only actually had just half of the right answer. So he says, how can Messiah be David's son then he continues in verse 36, he says, For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? So this is a puzzling verse, right? It's a puzzling sort of a scripture, but Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110. It's a Psalm of David. And Jesus is quoting this to show that David knew well that when the Messiah came, that the Messiah would be much more than simply his son or much more than simply a, a descendant of his. David knew that the coming Messiah was going to be nothing less than his Lord. And yet not in an earthly sense, right? So no Jewish father would have ever contemplated calling any of his sons. They would have never called him Lord in a human sense. So the only way that a son could be greater than the father was that if he was more than simply a son of the father. So David could only be saying that the Messiah when he came would be his Lord in some kind of a different sense. And what he's saying in this verse of this psalm is that even at that point, 
he understood that the Messiah would be nothing less than God himself in human flesh. Now, how did David know this? Well, it says right here in the verse, sometime, somehow, either in the Spirit or by the Spirit or through the Spirit, King David had overheard this divine conversation. He had overheard this heavenly conversation between the Father and the Son, and it says here that he had written it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the reason is because this conversation is a critical one. It's, it's, it's an indispensable one in terms of our understanding of Jesus' identity as the Messiah, because Jesus is not only the son of David, but he's the Lord of David. It's just like Jesus would confirm at the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, Jesus says this to John. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David. Both the root and the offspring, he says, the bright and morning star. And so here's something I think would help us understand this kind of a puzzling quote from Psalm 110, is that in the original language, so in the Hebrew of Psalm 110, where David writes that the Lord said to my Lord, right, as the Spirit inspired David to record it, he uses two different words for Lord. So the first Lord is the word Yahweh, right? Jehovah God, creator God, covenant God. The second Lord is the word Adonai, right? Which means Lord, master. It comes directly from a Hebrew root, which means the sovereign. So the Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit down here on this heavenly throne here with me. Right, sit down here in this place of power and in this place of authority and in this place of divinity because only a divine being could sit on the throne of the eternal. Only a divine being could sit at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so how then could such a one be the son of David? Well, of course, we know the answer. They didn't know the answer. And this truly was the crucial question. And the problem with these men, and the problem with Israel as a whole, is that they were afraid to even attempt either to try to explain how that could be possible or just to be open to understanding it. That Jesus is both the son of David in his humanity and he's the son of God in his divinity, right? In his divine nature. Jesus was begotten in the womb of the virgin without a human father. And so in this psalm, you really have just the whole mystery of the incarnation, really the whole mystery of the gospel itself wrapped up in this one verse. And so not surprisingly, and the reason that I'm spending some time on this is that the New Testament actually has more references or more allusions to Psalm 110 than any other single Old Testament passage. This very same verse about Jesus, the son of David, the son of God, God the son, about him joining God the Father on this heavenly throne, this same verse is either quoted or alluded to 24 different times 
throughout the New Testament. And I want us to remember that because it's one time for every hour in every day to remind us constantly throughout every day that Jesus Christ is still on the throne. Right? But the religious leaders, they had missed the entire meaning of the psalm. Just like they had missed the entire meaning of Isaiah 7, right? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. They had missed the real meaning of Jeremiah 23, where it says, Behold, the days are coming that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. They had missed Micah 5 where it says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old and from everlasting. Right? So they had missed the meaning of Psalm 2. They had missed the meaning also Hosea 1. They had missed the meaning of Zechariah chapter 2. And they had missed a very clear clue that was embedded right in plain sight, right in the Shema. That verse that they recited two times per day, every day. Remember, we looked at it last time. Jesus said they knew this was the greatest of the commandments. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And what they missed is that the word one in the Hebrew was a very special kind of a one. It's a word which is spoken of, it's a compound unity instead of an absolute one. So it's the Hebrew word echad instead of yahid. Okay, now one Hebrew language expert says this. He says, if Moses had intended to teach God's absolute oneness as opposed to his compound oneness, this would have been a far more appropriate word, yahid, to use. But he didn't use yahid, he used eshad. Because under the inspiration of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit was trying to tell us something if we were listening. Right, the Holy Spirit chose that word eshad, which he also chose to use in passages like Genesis 1-5, where it says that the evening and the morning were one day, right? Two parts making one thing. Genesis 2, chapter 4, where it says that man and woman shall come together and they shall become what? One flesh. Two things coming together to be one new thing. Ezra chapter 2, it talks about all the multitudes of Israel. It says that they were all gathered together as one man. So now we're talking about an entire assembly that of course included many people, but is referred to as one distinct thing. So you get the point. The problem was they missed the point. And they missed it for centuries and centuries. They missed it in the Shema. They missed it in the law. They missed it in the Psalms. They missed it in the prophets because they wouldn't 
or they couldn't simply allow the scriptures to speak for themselves and to say what they said. Right? So here's Jesus standing before them and he's asking them, how exactly is it that the scribes, right, these well-respected experts, the very doctors of the law, these religious experts who have devoted their lives to the study of God's word and who know the scriptures better than anybody else knows them, how is it that they also completely missed this? Now he's going to give us the answer to this in a few verses. But the point is here, these religious leaders thought they knew everything there was to know about the Messiah and Jesus is challenging this idea and asking them just to consider that they may have something still yet to learn. So this was a crucial question. He's trying to kind of pull out of their minds this idea of this conquering warrior Messiah who would found an earthly empire and instead he's trying to put into their minds this more full idea, a more complete picture of a Messiah who would come and be the servant of God who came to bring to men the love of God. And of course what he's really trying to do is have them see that they weren't seeing him for who he really was. Right? They were trying to trap him with their questions, but what he's trying to do is free them from their bondage and their arrogance and their assumptions with the question that he's asking. He's trying to get right to the heart of the matter, which is, do you really know who I am? And of course, they did not. Or if they did, they refused to simply accept him because they simply could not understand him. Because it didn't fit, it still doesn't fit with their very limited theology. Jesus is both fully God and he is at the same time fully man. And it's very sad to say that this has come into question not just amongst the Jewish people, but it's even come into question amongst some within the church who would claim to be Christian. Even though these two complete natures of Jesus Christ are clearly taught in the Bible, right? So everyone agrees that Jesus was a man. But the scriptures also clearly confirm the deity of Jesus over and over and over again. Did you know that Jesus is called the Son of God, which was a title of divinity? He was called that 40 different times in the New Testament. And according to John 5, that made Jesus equal with God. In fact, that's why they wanted to kill him. It says, therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Jesus is referred to as the only begotten son of God, as opposed to one of the many begotten sons of God. Right? Jesus is called the first and the last. He's called the Alpha and the Omega. That's their way of saying, right, he's the A to the Z. Now, if you go around and you're calling yourself the A to the Z, Right, or the first to the last, right? those are titles that only God should be called. Right? I don't care what kind of a rap phenom you are. Right? You're not the A to Z, and you're not the Alpha and the Omega. Right? 
Jesus is called the Holy One in the book of Acts. He's called the Lord of Glory in 1 Corinthians. He's called Everlasting Father in Isaiah chapter 9. And Jesus is unequivocally called God in Hebrews 1, John 20, Matthew 1, Titus 2, and Romans chapter 9. I go through all of that. Do not ever let anyone try to tell you that the Bible never says that Jesus is God. Do I need to go through them all again? I didn't think so. And certainly anybody who would just read one of the gospel accounts, we see that Jesus repeatedly does things even in his humanity, right? Through this power of the Holy Spirit, he does things that only God can do. From healing people to calming storms to casting out demons to cleansing lepers of leprosy, right? For the very first time in the history of Israel. Constantly demonstrating this incredible and unfailing, this clear authority both in the realms of the natural and of the supernatural. And finally, we see he even forgives people of their sins, which is certainly something that only God can do. So these are all things which clearly declare his deity. And these same men, they had either seen these things with their own eyes or they had been hearing about these things for the last three and a half years and they still refused to accept them. And so this question that he asks, you know, effectively, do you really know who I am? Do you really know all that I am? This is the very same question that he would still ask so many today. Because it's a question that's really designed to get them and to get us thinking about the true identity of Jesus. They had this very small view of the Christ. They had this very small view of the Messiah. They only thought of him as the son of David in a physical sense. But Jesus wants them to see and he wants us to know that he is also the son of God, right? That he is God the son. And this was and it still is of utmost importance because of what Jesus is about to do just days from this point when he will die on the cross for all of our sins. Because understand this, he didn't only die as the son of David, but he also died as the son of God because it was only as the son of God, only as the perfect, sinless, holy son of God that he was qualified to pay that penalty for our sin, right? It had to be a sinless life in exchange for our sinful life in order to satisfy the justice that the wrath of God demands. So we have to have a right view of who Jesus is and of, of who he was. You guys are all familiar with A.W. Tozer, and most of you have probably read The Knowledge of the Holy, and in it he writes this. He says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And then he goes on essentially to say that, you know, if you know what a person really believes in his or her heart, if you know what they believe that God is like, it's gonna, you will be able to predict with certainty their spiritual future, whether they will be successful or 
a failure in the spiritual realm. And the idea is that if a person has a high view of Jesus, right, of his majesty and his ability, what that does is that that produces within us a sense of peace and a sense of protection and a sense of security. So what we think about the Lord Jesus really does determine so much about us. If we get it wrong about Jesus, it really doesn't matter in a lot of ways what else we get right. Right? Look at Jesus. Who is Jesus? If you don't believe that he is God incarnate, if you don't believe that he is very God in human flesh, if you don't believe that he could completely take upon himself the sins of the entire world, if you don't believe that he was that perfect, sinless, infinitely holy sacrifice because he actually was God in the flesh, then you can believe, you can say you believe in Jesus, you can say you believe in God, but what does it really matter? Is the God you're talking about the real God of the Bible? Is the Jesus you're talking about really the real Jesus? And, and this has such practical implications in our lives because the right view of who Jesus is, it helps us practically, it helps us experientially, it helps us daily as we just try to deal with all of the different things that life throws at us. Because what the right view of Jesus does is it confirms in our minds and it confirms in our hearts that he can do and all that he wants to do in our lives, right? Is your Jesus the Jesus who can stand behind all of the promises that he made to you? Right? The, the promise of rest from our burdens and the promise for, of peace in the midst of our tribulations. That promise that, that power would come th from him through the Holy Spirit. The promise that Jesus made that he would never leave us nor forsake us. The promise that he made that he is with us always, even to the end of the age. The promise where he said that he's going to prepare a place for us and that he will come back to us and receive us and that where he is that we will be with him always. Those are big promises made by a big Jesus. And if your view of Jesus is too small, then what's going to happen is you're going to doubt his ability to fulfill those very promises and you will doubt it when you most need to believe it. So I am not just spouting a bunch of theological jargon or having some kind of a doctrinal overdose up here, right? We need to have a right understanding of who Jesus is and what it is that he came to do. It's still the critical question. And, and that understanding really begins in understanding that our real enemy that he came to defeat once and for all was our sin. He had come to deliver the Jews and to deliver us, we've said it before, but from a far greater enemy than the Romans. He came to deliver us from our sins. And he came to establish not a, an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly one, at least for right now. He will establish that earthly kingdom when he returns at his second coming. But for now, even as we see here in the psalm, right? For now, where does it say he is? He sits and he waits 
enthroned with God, even at the right hand of God. Look at the end of verse 36. He's going to sit there and wait. It says, the father says, till I make your enemies your footstool, or until I put all your enemies under your feet. And we are still waiting for that time. We're still waiting for that fullness of the kingdom to fully come. And as his followers, we need to wait just like Jesus is waiting. And in the meantime, we need to look beyond all of the kingdoms of the earth and we need to look to this coming kingdom of heaven. Right? What the prophet Daniel said that, that you know, God revealed that one day Jesus will return and it says the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. And we've brought this up before and I'm bringing it up again because it's so important because it's so easy for all of us just to get caught up in, and, and twisted up in the turmoil of the nations, right? We see it played out 24-7 on cable news and in our feeds on our phones, including, of course, the turmoil of our own nation. And we can be so grieved by the chaos and the turmoil and the sin, not just in our own land, but certainly now we're seeing it ravaging entire regions of the world. And yet, what the Bible reminds us is that all of this is to be expected. And though we are absolutely, we're called to pray and we're called to labor for the, for the betterment of our nation and the betterment of the world, we need to keep our sights firmly fixed upward and look beyond all of that to this kingdom that will have no end. That kingdom that we are part of even now. Remember what Paul wrote to the Philippians. He said that our citizenship is where? It's on the board, right? You can read it. It's in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There are so many problems in our world. There are so many problems in our lives, and I know that every single one of you that's here listening this morning, we all have situations, right? We all have issues, maybe with people that are in our lives that we so desperately want to see resolved. Maybe issues of health or issues of oppression where we are just praying for the victory. But we are assured that that day is coming when Jesus will return and all of us who believe in him, we will experience that great victory then. We're going to experience the vanquishing of all evil. And that's the hope that we have. That's the confident expectation that we hold because we have a right view of who Jesus is. A right view of what he actually came to do. But here we have these scribes, we have these religious leaders, and they had misled and mistaught the Jewish people over the course of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They had taken the entire trajectory of Judaism far off course from what God ever intended. But here now, as we move on in our text, look at the end of verse 37. 
we start to see now that it's the words of Jesus that are starting to really resonate, not with the scribes, not with the Pharisees, not with the Sadducees. What does it say? Mark tells us, end of verse 37, that the common people heard him gladly. So we have this sizable crowd that's gathered and watching this exchange, just like they'd watched all the other exchanges that these religious groups had tried to attack and trick Jesus. This sizable crowd, Mark says, they were delighted with what Jesus was saying. They may not have fully understood all the theological implications or the explanation or the interpretation of Psalm 100, but they were willing to accept the words of Jesus, no doubt, because they could tell this was just a breath of fresh air. This is the way that Jesus here is breathing life into the scriptures and really bringing out what was the heart behind them, and they could sense that as the Spirit witnessed to them. And now in these very few verses that we have left in our text today, Jesus is going to do something. He's going to say something that's very significant, right? So he's just asked this crucial question of these men. Now he's going to, in, in what are, keep in mind, <coughs> these are the final words of the public ministry of Jesus. And he's going to spend these words now offering a very strong word of caution against these men. Watch what he says. <clears throat> I thought we were past all this. <clears throat> says, then he said to them in his teaching, he says, beware of the scribes <clears throat> who desire to go around in long robes. <clears throat> who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Thank you. He says they will receive the greater condemnation. Ouch, right? These are rough words. I mean, these are rough words coming from anybody, but from gentle Jesus? Well, you bet. And here's why. It's because what we are witnessing right here, this is the good shepherd protecting his sheep from the wolves that he knew were in their midst. These religious men had misled all of the common people because they were far more interested in the appearance of a right relationship with God than with the humility that's required or the, the humility that actually flows from being in a right relationship with God. They were far more concerned with appearances than they ever were with getting to the truth. And their pride would not allow them to admit that they were wrong. And this was so important to Jesus that he uses these final words that he would ever speak to the multitudes to warn them against the influence, against the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees, Matthew tells us, and to avoid at all costs to follow after their example. Now, Mark gives us the abbreviated version in just three verses. Matthew gives us the extended cut. He gives us the director's cut. Matthew gives us 
chapter, 39 verses of everything that Jesus said to them. So if you'll turn with me to Matthew 23, I'm kidding. I would never do that to you guys. Well, maybe I would, <coughs> but I'm not going to do it today. But you know the chapter, right? It's a great one. Matthew 23, where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he says it eight different times. Because <clears throat> Matthew gives us this full explosion of Jesus right onto the scribes and Pharisees. And it's pretty intense. His words are direct and they're sharp. And some people maybe even object to how direct and how forceful Jesus is. And they go, man, you know, I thought Jesus was just cool. Like, I thought Jesus was just, you know, kind of gentle, and I thought he just kind of went around, you know, listening to people and comforting people and just being some kind of a big love machine, you know. But here's the reality. Jesus saw the bad behavior of the scribes and Pharisees the very same way that a doctor sees cancer. They were dangerous to the spiritual life of his people and they were destroying them from the inside out. And so he calls them out on just a few key things here in Mark's account. The very first thing, he talks about the fact they like to walk around in these long robes. And this is just a reference to those long sort of garments that the priests and the scribes and the Levites would wear. But here's what happened. The long robes weren't enough to really get them noticed. And so what they had done is they started to do some things to make those robes really stand out. Now, you guys remember, you Bible students know, in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 15, God had told all of the people of Israel that even with their everyday clothes, that they, want, they were to add to the corner of their garments a little blue tassel. And the reason for this was that as they were going through life as God's people, they would look down and they would see that blue, which was a picture of the skies, because it would be a constant daily reminder that they were a heavenly people, that they weren't supremely concerned about the things happening in this world, that they were a people who were supremely about the Lord and the things of the Lord, and so that they needed to live like God's people in the world. So that's what it was intended to do, right? Not a bad idea at all. And you still see many Orthodox Jews will do this today. But the scribes and the Pharisees, what they had done, they didn't just add the tassels, but they started to supersize the tassels. Right? And they increased the size of the hem on their garments. And what they were trying to do was show that they were a more heavenly people than just the regular kind of heavenly people. So these tassels got bigger and even bigger so that what happened is kind of your badge of spirituality started to become who has the biggest tassels. right? Who has the biggest blue border on your robe rather than looking at the inner person. The true mark of real spirituality is a person who's actually walking in the world as a child of God, dominated by the things of heaven. Another thing they did, we talked about before. Remember, God had told them in the Shema 
that they were to, to bind the word to their, to their heads and to their hands. And so they made those little leather boxes called phylacteries where they could put these little snippets of scripture. It was really an attempt to literally fulfill that command. Again, Orthodox Jews still do this today. But what happened is that the scribes and the Pharisees started to look around in Jesus' time and they said, well, wait a minute. Any old common Jew coming to the temple has the regular sized phylactery. And if we only have that same size phylactery, phylactery, say that with me, right? Then everybody's going to think we're only as spiritual as those regular people are. And there's no recognition in having a regular sized phylactery. So what did they do? They supersized them too. To the point where they had these huge leather boxes on their wrists and on their foreheads. And it was a way for them to say, oh, you know, we just love the word of God so much. And it's so obvious because these huge boxes are just filled with scripture that we have strapped all around our bodies. And so you kind of start to picture these religious leaders going around with these huge robes, with these long tassels, these huge boxes on their heads, and all of it was just meant to communicate how super duper godly they were in comparison to the general population. But here's the heart of the matter, you guys. You know, Halloween is coming up at the end of the month, right? And some people love to put on costumes. But the fact is, your Iron Man costume does not give you the ability to fly. Right? And your Hulk costume does not give you superhuman strength. Right? We all know they're just costumes, right? And see, anybody can put on a religious costume, but it doesn't make them spiritual. And these religious leaders had a godly look on the outside, but they weren't devoted to God on the inside. It wasn't ever actually at all about the scripture in a box on the outside. The whole purpose behind that, what God was saying is, look, you're my people, and I want you thinking, I want your processing, I want how it is that you view life, I want it to be dominated by my word. Right? I want your actions. I want what you do with your hands. I want the things that you do in your life. I want those things to be dominated by my word. Right, What you think, what you do, where you go, all of it governed by the word of God. And it's the same thing he wants from us today as followers of Jesus. He wants us to really practice and to cultivate that inner devotion to God, not the outer appearance. You know, it's interesting, if you think about virtually any other religion of the world, what you discover is that most of them have some form of special attire that designates them as what they are, especially during their, their celebrations or their rituals or their, their ceremonies, festivals. But true Christianity I'm talking about actual biblical Christianity is not concerned with any of that. It's not concerned with any of those externals. Did you know that there is no scripture in the New Testament that prescribes any kind of a ritual costume to be worn, not by a priest and not by a person, because God doesn't care what we wear. God is looking at the inner person that real, sincere, 
inner devotion to him. You remember what God said to Samuel, right? When God chose little runty David, he chose him over his seven strapped older brothers, right? He says that the Lord sees not as man sees, that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And that's that thing that we should want. We should want that deep inner devotion. We want to make sure there's something real going on here within. It is way too easy just to fake it to impress the church family. And by the way, all of these things that Jesus is describing with the robes and the, the outward signs of devotion, those things really only work amongst religious people, right? If you go out to the club or the pub or whatever and you pray some super long prayer, well, nobody's impressed with that there, right? Only in the church. It's only in the church where any of these things are going to get any kind of traction, but what we should want more and what we should want to seek to develop more, again, it's that inner devotion to Christ. All of these things that the scribes were doing and the Pharisees were doing, they were doing simply for the praise of men. They were doing it because it elevated their religious status. It elevated their religious standing in the eyes of the people. And then it earned them all of these other things that Jesus mentions, those greetings in the marketplaces with these inflated religious titles, right? The best seats at the synagogues, the best places at the feasts. These were all religious status symbols, right? Seats of honor where everybody could always see you during religious gatherings. Now, most of you guys know we rent this space. And I just have one question. Who in the world would really want to sit in these seats during the service? I keep telling Don Jay he's fine right down there where he is. I'm just kidding. Don Jay is one of the most humble guys that I know. But here's the thing. There's a dark side to all of this too. All of this religious hypocrisy. And Mark just touches on it here in his account. But these men were using their artificially inflated and their, their respected, revered religious positions of honor and power, and they were using them to get rich at the expense of the most vulnerable in society. Right? Jesus says they're to devour widows' houses. What graphic, vivid language, right? Just exploiting the generosity of people on limited means, right? Especially widows. Just trying to separate these women from their money and even ultimately from their homes under the premise of giving it away to the work of the Lord. Now, I don't need to go into some big, long illustration, right? You can turn on just about any Christian programming many Christian programs, and you can see that happening. I will say this, though. Jesus hates it. He hates all of it. He hates all of this religious hypocrisy, and that's why he speaks so directly and so passionately against this in this warning, right? And these warnings and this passage, even the short version that Mark gives us, I will tell you, it can really be an affront to some people. Some people are really offended by this. It depends a lot on what our background is in the church. 
or from what tradition or what denomination we may have come out of or still be part of. Where you'll find people, they start to make excuses about the robes and the titles and the hierarchy and the ritual and the tradition and the pomp and the pageantry. And they start to explain that somehow it's okay. But here's what we forget. All of this is in red letters, you guys. This is Jesus himself, the head of the church, denouncing something that he does not want to be a part of the church, this kind of religious hypocrisy. Because here's what it so often does, and exactly what it was doing in Jesus' day. It keeps people from the Lord. Right? Matthew spells it out so clearly what Jesus says. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He says, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Those are strong words, right? So this kind of thing and these kind of people, right? These scribes and Pharisees or the modern day scribes and Pharisees, they are an obstacle to people coming to faith in Jesus. They were an, an active obstacle to people coming to know Jesus and to embrace him as their savior. And one of the ways that they did it was by keeping the masses in a state of ignorance concerning the word of God. They kept the masses ignorant concerning Jesus and the claims of Jesus and ignorance to the grace of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. And you think about how many people, and I won't ask for a show of hands, but I guarantee you there would be some in this room this morning, and you could multiply that out around the world. But how many men and women had to leave a religious system to even hear about a personal relationship with God. To even hear about being born again. To even hear about the fact that they needed to be saved. Or that they could be saved through coming to faith in Christ. This is the kind of stuff that goes on all over the place. Where religious leaders through their hypocrisy. Not only are they not getting in. But Jesus says they have become an obstacle or a stumbling block and they are making it more difficult for other people to get saved also and Jesus does not like it not at all and he promises look at the end of the verse he promises to these people that these will receive greater condemnation because they had greater accountability right in in James who of course is the half brother of Jesus right? Same mother, different father, right? But James, in his letter to the church, he writes this. He says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. And I will be, and every leader in any church will be more harshly judged than anyone who simply attends that church. And it should be that way. Because there needs to be that kind of a fear of God around these things. And thank God that the early church seems to have understood this message that Jesus is delivering here. They understood that the scribes and the Pharisees and the way that they were headed was not the path that the early church should be headed. And yet, unfortunately, you don't have to know much about church history to know that there are long, long stretches in church history 
where this very same error of the scribes and the Pharisees crept right back into the church and even became the dominant way of doing things in the church. And it's always this great temptation in the flesh because our flesh loves to be celebrated. It loves to be elevated. It loves to be exalted and to be recognized. But by the grace of God, instead, we need to be a people who follows the way of Jesus, right? And put our flesh to death, right? Laying down our lives for other people, not trying to lift it up, right? We're not trying to build our own kingdoms. We're trying to serve and build and advance his kingdom because it's not at all about us at all. As we close, <clears throat> there's a fascinating passage in the Old Testament, and I love what it, what it speaks about this to our hearts. But it's in Genesis chapter 20, as God spoke to the children of Israel. And essentially what he says, he says, look, when you build an altar, right, a place where you're going to make sacrifice, he said, just build it out of the stones that you find laying around. He says, you don't need to be carving that stone up into anything fancy, nothing that's going to take people's attention off of me and put their attention on that stone, right, or on the craftsmanship of the carving. And then he says an interesting thing, similarly, concerning the priest who was going to be offering that sacrifice, he says to the priests, hey, when you go up to the altar, he says, I don't want your legs to show out from under your robe at all. I don't want anyone to see any of your flesh because I don't want to compete with your flesh for the attention of my people. As we're gathered together and we're supposed to be worshiping me, and so he prohibited those things of them. And it's just such an important reminder that God is always to be the center of our attention in all of these settings. And yet here are these religious leaders and they are competing with God. They're claiming to represent God, but they're really competing with God for the attention of his people. Right? What did Paul say to the Corinthians? He said, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And we've said this before, but I hope we can all see ourselves in that verse. Right? I'll give you a hint. You are not the treasure. Right? Jesus is the treasure. Right? We are the earthen vessel. Right? We are the clay pot, dirty, dusty, earthly. And no one is supposed to stand there and admire the pot. Right? We want them to admire the treasure that's in the pot, the treasure that's in us, because that's what's going to draw the people to him. So we can avoid the error of these men by keeping the focus on the treasure not on the clay pot. That's the way that it's supposed to work. And it doesn't work any other way. No matter how pretty you try to make your pot, it doesn't work. So these final words of Jesus to the public, this harsh rebuke of these religious hypocrites, it just reminds us of that simple truth. We need to keep the focus of our lives, keep the focus of our ministries right on the treasure where it was always intended to be. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, 
for this morning, and we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for even the difficult sections of your word, Lord, that challenge us and that challenge our flesh, Lord. Perhaps they challenge our behavior, Lord. Surely they challenge our, uh, the motivations of our hearts. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd continue to speak to us through these things, Lord. Make us a people who are not competing with you for the attention of your people, Lord. But may we be directing the focus always toward you and always toward the treasure of your son, Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, and it's in his name that we praise you now. And all God's people said, amen.